You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the Queen of Crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Brobeck. And this week, we are covering a short story. It is time to revisit the Listerdale Mystery Collection. That was intriguing. The specific short story in question is A Fruitful Sunday. Mm. Catherine Brobeck, can you tell us a little bit about the publication history of this one? first published on August 11th, 1928 in the Daily Mail. And then, of course, it was published as part of the Listerdale Mystery Collection in the UK in June 1934. And as we all know, many of those stories were not published until much later in the US, all the way in 1971 in The Golden Ball and other stories. And I do feel like, I'm sure there are exceptions to this rule, but often when we find a story in the Listerdale Mystery Collection not being published in the US, until almost four decades later, it feels like there's a reason for it. Uh Uh-oh, are you giving a spoiler about your feelings of this story? (laughs) (laughs) Let's just say this isn't the most robust story. Are you saying this was not a fruitful read? Yes, a fruitful Sunday, but perhaps a fruitless read. Oh, dear. (laughs) All right, I'm going to talk about our victim because there isn't one. Easy for you then to talk about it. Yes, that's why I've chosen to take on this task. We are not in a puzzle mystery here. We're really not even in a thriller adventure story because so little happens in this story. I suppose that if we had to stretch matters, we could say that the victim is the owner of a 50,000 pound ruby necklace that has been stolen from the post en route from France to England. Although who sticks a 50,000 pound ruby necklace in the mail? It feels like they perhaps are asking for it. That might be on them. <laughs> there is um, some real shade thrown at the French postal service later. So yes, there is. I suppose we will get there. Tell us about our suspects, Catherine. Uh, unknown jewel thieves, postal thieves, the French postal service, uh, leering roadside fruit vendors. Uh, <laughs> guess what? There really is not a suspect here. Just like there's really not a victim. Yeah. I mean, we talk about the lighter, frothier side of Christie. Again, not a surprise that this story was written in the 20s. Whenever we do come across these stories, I believe they tend to be written in the 20s because that, of course, is when she was writing most of her short stories. But it's also when she was dabbling in a lighter affair. And this one, I would argue, is pretty much all froth. Very little um, soup. That was an awkward analogy. <laughs> Whatever your liquid of, of choice would be, beer, soup. I think this just keeps getting worse. <laughs> 
<laughs> All right. I'm going to talk about the world as a period. Please do. So, Dorothy Pratt is a housemaid in London whose employer insists on calling all the housemaids Jane. And we have come across this in other Christie stories. I thought I was hallucinating it at first. I was like, why does this seem so familiar? So apparently this really was a thing that there were just maidish names and people didn't want to have to bother to remember names. So they would just give them a name, which is pretty offensive, at least to a 21st century dehumanizing sensibility. To one, yes, dehumanizing. It reminds me of, this could be apocryphal, but... Living in L.A. as we do, sometimes you come across these stories from Hollywood. And apparently in the first iteration of the Roseanne Barr show, Roseanne, she just assigned the writers on staff numbers because she didn't, didn't want to learn their names. So she'd be like, four. What do you got? Is that true? I, I say again, I, it's apocryphal. So I'm, I'm not going to stand by its veracity, but that is what I've heard. Well, I guess that's, a, Anywho, that's one way to do things. That's one way to do things. And apparently it's how things were done in um, the household at which poor Dorothy Jane Pratt worked. So she's annoyed by her job. I feel her. And she chooses to get over it by going on a day trip with her beau, Edward Palgrove, in his brand new used car. And this is a baby Austin, which is ancient and cheap and very hard for him to drive, even though he is trying desperately to impress Dorothy. Yeah, he has so he's, both hands clutching everything and both feet pumping at the same time. Yeah, yeah. He also is just having a hard time multitasking because every time he has to respond to Dorothy's complaining, he almost gets into an accident. And he really does swerve, pun intended, between bravado and timidity when it comes to his driving stance here on this joy ride. I think it's worth pointing out that Christy herself was an early and avid driver. Right. She talks at great length about that Morris Cowley that she bought with the serialization money that she got from the man in the brown suit, which we mentioned in an earlier episode, and what joy that gave her. She loved to drive, and there is a lot of specificity here in terms of what he's doing wrong and the grinding of the gears and almost running into policemen, and it's all very fun. It is. And so finally they get... Out of the city traffic, which he didn't want to drive in to begin with, except he kind of just keeps getting stuck, so he really can't get out of the city. It's kind of sad for him. (laughs) But eventually, by sheer accident, and because he's kind of going with the flow of the traffic, because at that point he's, like, shaken, uh, they accidentally turn down a beautiful, shaded country road where they amble along until they see a very random fruit stand up ahead. Where there is a more than somewhat creepy man selling the fruit who leers at them while hawking his strawberries and cherries. So they pull over, they don't stop the car, and Dorothy is really not that put off by the creepy man and is convinced that they need both the strawberries that they originally wanted and the cherries that the man is trying to hawk to them. And so Edward is like, ugh, fine. And buys are both, and the vendor insists that they're getting, like, such a huge bargain on this fruit. And then Edward, of course, almost plows the car into the van. Yeah, I mean, the reason why he doesn't stop the car also is I think he's worried that he won't be able to start it again. Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah, so he manages not to kill the vendor, so that's good. Well, although it would have added some spice to the story. It perhaps would have added some spice to the story. (laughs) That became a then fugitive 
fugitives on the front. <laughs> a vehicular manslaughter story. <laughs> it's what every Christie short thriller needs is vehicular manslaughter. So they continue on their merrier way now that they have some fruit in the boot of their car or wherever. And um, they find a lovely riverbank spot and they relax and they eat their fruit and they read the paper. And we should always take note in a Christie story when the, when a newspaper comes out and someone starts reading from it because the topic L- du jour. Looking at you, Captain Hastings. Exactly. Is, you know, starting with Captain Hastings and those early Poirot stories, it is always significant. So let's take notice. And you know what? There's nothing else to take notice of in this story, so that's not a problem. (laughs) And we learned from a front-page story that there has been a theft of a 50,000-pound ruby necklace. It was being mailed from France to England. Dorothy proceeds to fantasize about what life would be like if you could have such fancy things, like a ruby necklace fit for a duchess or a Rolls-Royce. They throw some shade on the French Postal Service. They continue to just have a lark on this lovely afternoon. And then... Dorothy reaches for some more of those delicious, cheap cherries, and uh, she feels something that's not cherries. There are a bunch of things I'd be worried about if I were buying bargain rate cherries on the side of a rural road, but, um, (laughs) you know, it turns out it's not any of those things. In fact, it's a ruby necklace. (gasps) It's not E. coli. It's a necklace. Right. (laughs) Right. And so it's not only a ruby necklace, it's a ruby necklace with the same number of rubies as the stolen necklace they were just reading about in the newspaper. And of course, Dorothy is immediately smitten with it. And keeps holding it up. She wants to put it on. And while she's ogling this piece of jewelry, they debate on whether or not it could possibly be real. Right. She mentions the fact that rubies are supposed to have the color of pigeon's blood. I know. And she believes that these rubies do, in fact, have that color. I love how she she sort of turns regal as she's putting it up to her. Oh, and poor, poor Edward thinks they can test it because you're supposed to scratch them on glass. And Dorothy's like, that's a diamond. You idiot. <laughs> yeah. So Dorothy and Edward get into a fight, as young lovers sometimes do, about what they should do with this necklace and what might happen if they're caught with it. And it turns out to be the real thing. Which we're still not sure about, let's be clear. We don't get confirmation, but it seems to be. And we do think, well, okay, I'm reading an Agatha Christie short thriller-ish story here involving a jewel theft. So, yeah, this has got to be the real thing. And Dorothy wants to keep the necklace, but she decides that they would be better off if they fence it, because that's what people do in stories right? <laughs> and make a lot of money off it. And she's still bitter about her position and, and how she has to work for this hard person that won't even call her by her real name. And she she sees this as a bit of luck that has been thrown their way, and she would like to take advantage of it. Right. Edward is horrified because he has been brought up properly, and he snatches the necklace away from her and says that he'll hold on to it while they decide what to do. And then he goes home and he has second thoughts, and he's like, hmm, maybe we actually should fence it. This is the most Snow White innocent version of a simple plan. Do you remember yeah, a simple plan? Yeah, I do. Oh my God, look at this. Over $100 bills. I bet it's drug money. You know what? If this guy's a dope dealer, we're just like Robin Hood. Mm. <laughs> it's a police matter now. What do you think we should do? What if we didn't turn it in? It's stealing. It's the American dream and a gym bag. He just wants to walk away from it. You work for the American dream. You don't steal it. 
in those movies and there are other movies and, and stories we could reference. I just honestly can't think of any off the top of my head, but I'm sure there are dozens. You're always waiting for the, for the other shoe to drop and for the bad things to Well, ensue. no, you're waiting for somebody to show up at a door and say, you have something that belongs to me. Exactly. So I was waiting for that. Right. It, d- it didn't seem like it was going there, especially because yeah. we've, where, where does it go next? Well, and we've come across the police in this story several times during the driving episode. Mm-hmm. So we kind of are afraid for them, right? When they're driving home and they do see the police and, you know, he's being very conscientious about his driving, but he doesn't do anything that night. And the next morning, Dorothy calls him frantic. And says he has to wait before doing anything. She's been having second thoughts. They need to meet and they need to discuss. She, like, read her Bible the night before. This is not, they can't do this. It's unchristian. And, you know, don't do anything. They have to talk. And Edward kind of is like, "Mm, well, I don't know. We talked about this. I might, uh, you know, I'm really considering going and fencing this because that's what you really wanted. But, you know. Gee, I guess I suppose I can maybe hold off. <laughs> it's just like it's a- all such an act. It makes me like him more because I think we worry based on the depiction of their relationship in the opening pages that he is falling into the henpecked position. Right. In that he's he's a little too meek. And I think this kind of shows that he's got some uh, backbone here, that he's giving her a hard time when he doesn't have to, just sort of for the fun of it. It's a little mean-spirited, but not problematically so. Well, because she of kind funny. of bullied him into trying to fence the necklace. And so now he's like taking a sweet time when he doesn't want to the necklace to begin with. Right, right. So that's really where we are at the end of the world as it appears to be. And 100% what we're waiting for is for this all to just go horribly, horribly awry and for someone to get, you know, stabbed in the neck or something. But it's not exactly where this story goes. So let's talk about the world as it actually is. Because on his way to meet with his lady love, Edward reads the paper of course. on the train. There's some sort of update on the jewel theft that we see, but we don't actually learn what the update is quite yet. And then he goes and meets Dorothy. And what does he say to Dorothy, Catherine? He gives her the necklace and basically tells her that she can put it on. What? Yeah. <laughs> I thought that he wasn't actually going to go through with keeping it or fencing it. I thought he was going to do the right thing. You see, when a newspaper comes up in a Christie story... We should think that there was something in the newspaper, and turns out there was, because the police, they found the real ruby necklace, and they caught the thief. And at the same time, a British fruit company, really promoting buying British fruit, (laughs) um, (laughs) has decided to have a promotion where, in certain boxes of fruit, there's a hidden paste gem necklace as basically a marketing ploy. And so the article that he also saw... On the train in the paper next to the story about the jewel thief was this story about what a massive marketing success this jewel ploy has been and how they're, they're going to do another round of it the next day. Right. And so, of course, that's what Dorothy has. Dorothy got one of the boxes of fruit that has this like elaborate paste gem necklace in it. It just happened to be the same number of rubies and it was never the real, the real necklace at all. No. The end. Yeah, there's a weird coda where a man walks by and implies to Edward because Dorothy is so glammed up and the necklace basically implies to 
um, Edward that she's not virtuous. He turns it into a compliment because he says, well, because you look so good. Right. You know, you look, I know. You look too good to look virtuous. Edward, Edward's really working it at the end. Edward's really working it. And that's all we got. But here's what I will say. And this is, I think, as kind as I can be to this story. Christy is doing something similar to what's being done in a classic short story such as The Gift of the Magi right. by O. Henry. Always a, a holiday favorite. We're, we're just coming out of the holidays. And in that story, it's the idea that even though this couple ends the story poorer materially than they were at the beginning, they have a richer sense of their love for each other and a richer appreciation, and they are going to go on to have a happier life. And I think you can argue that she's doing that here. Dorothy, especially, is very unhappy at the beginning of the story, and she almost falls for a trap in doing the wrong thing when she thinks that she's been given a lucky break. Think do you ever feel evil? I do. And what saves her is herself because she does ultimately, her conscience comes in and she realizes that she is actually a better person than I think certainly the reader thought she was at the beginning of the story, but perhaps even herself. And she calls it off before she even knows that the necklace isn't real. The fact that it turned out not to be real is just ironic, but the point is that they did the right thing and that they actually seem to belong together and have a really good time together and are going to be happy. Right. And she will hopefully not have to work for that woman anymore. Oh, that horrid woman. I hope they can get married sooner rather than later. Right. And start a family of their own. Maybe get something that's not that baby Austin. Yeah, get another car and maybe some costume jewelry that is a little less trashy seeming. (laughs) I know. I'm picturing her wearing just like the most elaborate, whoa, okay, lady. (laughs) But this is clearly fun, flirty Christy believing in the power of love and the ability of people to be happy or at least making that pretense as a writer, which I think she did less and less of as she got older. Because you know what? The older you get, the less you feel the need to uh, put up that sort of a facade. (laughs) What? You're saying that you can't just like have swept off your feet of romance as an old? I suppose you can. And you know what? We haven't gotten to Posture of Fate yet. Maybe that's the lesson to be gleaned from Posture of Fate, Uh, that love never dies. Oh, no, but we might. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think this might be the slightest Christie short story that we've covered thus far. I think it's a distinct possibility. And just, again, goes to show the whipsawing within this collection of the Listerdale mystery, because let's just remind listeners that this is the collection that has Philomel Cottage. This is the collection that has Accidents. We love. Two of her favorite short yeah, stories two of, that yeah, we've covered. So good. But it also has these slighter selections, such as A Fruitful Sunday and a couple of others. The mixed bag that you have with these short stories is part of the fun, I think, of covering them. And um, sometimes you come up a little short. I mean... And that's okay. This was certainly pleasant. It was a pleasant There's nothing wrong with reading this. It will only take you a few minutes. A few minutes. Yes. Yes. No more than five minutes. Max. I mean, if you're a slow reader, I think it's fair to say it could take you 10 minutes. That is a fruitful Sunday. Join us next week for a 
total and utter change of pace, we will be revisiting our friend, the ever-mysterious Mr. Harley Quinn in The Man from the Sea. And then the week after that, we are doing something even differenter because we are a marpling. We are revisiting our, well, my old friend and Catherine's old nemesis, Miss Jane. Dark Marple. Who we haven't seen in so many episodes. It's been such a long time. It's been ages since we covered a novel, since all we've covered thus far is the first Miss Marple novel, Oh So Many Moons Ago, The Murder at the Vicarage. This is our second Miss Marple novel. There is such a large gap between the two. We did fill it a bit with Miss Marple short stories and The Thirteen Problems. We have a few other Miss Marple short stories to cover in future episodes, but we have been saving those. But yes, I'm excited for The Body in the Library. I'm excited not only to revisit Miss Jane Marple, but also our friends, the Bantries, and I believe Sir Henry Clithery I mean, we love also makes an appearance. all of them. I am looking forward to hearing about Dolly's gardens. Oh my God. Dolly, what has been going on with her garden? How are her new bulbs doing? Are any of them poisonous and will they be used in future murders? We don't know, but we'll find out. We would love to hear from you, as we always do. Email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. Our Facebook page is All About Agatha. Our Instagram handle is All About Agatha as well. And we are, of course, on Twitter at All About the Dame. Catherine is on Twitter at Robcat. And we would love if you would take a moment to rate and review us wherever you're listening to this podcast because it really helps others find it. And we revel in hearing from you. We will see you next time. Bye. Bye. of being upsold at gyms my guy you're currently a base member for 90 dollars more i can upgrade you to our shred membership for 130 more you'll be a swole member and for just 300 more you'll reach sweat platinum at planet fitness you'll get energy without the upsell never pushy always free fitness training and equipment for every workout it's fitness that fits your budget join planet fitness for just one dollar down and ten dollars a month cancel anytime deal ends friday may 10th see home club for details